Last week we we looked at the we looked at uh, two two groups that are unlikely allies, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and together uh, they they somehow resisted fighting each other long enough to try to trap Jesus in a trap. And of course, they they learned the hard way that that's easier said than done. This morning, it's the Sadducees' turn to try to challenge Jesus. So stand with me as we read in our scripture, Luke chapter 20. We will read verses 27 to 33 to start with, but we're going to cover all the way through verse 40. Luke 20, 27. This is God's word, and if you let it, it will change your life. There came to him some Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Pray with me. Father, as we unravel this case of seven husbands, may we see with clarity the true issues. And may we find in your son's words the gospel and the wisdom that we need to live for you. Bless the reading and preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. The case of the seven husbands. I almost started this with a uh, with a, a murder mystery type of opening. It's it's a curious case. We have Jesus trying uh, G, uh, this group of Sadducees trying to pin down Jesus with a question. The the Pharisees and the Herodians, when they came to him in the verses that we read last week, uh, those those guys. They, they really hit him with a political question. It was a, it was a political trap to try to either get the crowds away from him or to try to get uh, him to say something that would get him in trouble with Caesar, right? It was kind of a, they were trying to catch him in a catch 22 from a political standpoint. The Sadducees are using a very different tactic here. And we don't know a lot about this religious group. They were political and religious. They were, uh, along with the Pharisees, they were both uh, members of the Sanhedrin. But the Sadducees were a much smaller group. We do know that. One of the reasons we know that is because they didn't leave anything behind. You cannot look and find writings by Sadducees. The only thing we know about them come from the Bible and come from the writings of Pharisees. And Pharisees aren't exactly friendly to Sadducees. Um, There was a lot of conflict between the two groups. And so what we basically have is a lot of evidence of people that didn't like the Sadducees, but not a whole lot of Sadducees defending themselves. So so we have to look at the historical record with a little bit of an eye toward, okay, maybe this is an exaggeration, or maybe this is putting them in a bad light, worse than what they deserve. But in any case, um, they, they approach Jesus with a question. Now, what we do know about them is that they they denied this idea of resurrection. In fact, they denied a lot of spiritual things. They didn't believe in angels or demons, spiritual beings like that. They they didn't accept the the way that the Pharisees interpreted the law. 
They didn't believe in following all of the religious traditions that were handed down from the fathers and and from their fathers and from their fathers going all the way back. They would have claimed to have been people of the book. They would have claimed that we follow just the writings of what we call the Old Testament. Some even said that they rejected everything but the Pentateuch, but that appears to be probably a bit of an overstatement. These guys would have basically said, well, if it's not there in the text, then we don't believe it, okay? Sounds like a reasonable position to take. The problem is that everybody says that, right? (laughs) The Pharisees were saying that even while they were compounding all these laws and traditions. Even while they were adding all of these different things to what God had said to try to clarify it, they were still saying they were people of the book. We today as Baptists claim to be people of the book. If the Bible says it, that's it. If the Bible doesn't say it, then then that's it. That's what we claim to be. And many other denominations and many other practices all claim the same idea that they are following God's will in what they do. One interesting thing about the Sadducees seems to be, and we don't know this exactly for sure, we don't know if this was just some of them or if this was prevalent, but they seem to enjoy challenging their teachers, which might be why they feel so confident to approach Jesus with this question. You see, for the Sadducee, the idea of a resurrection is just ludicrous. So they set out to prove it. Now, to get exactly what they're doing, kind of our modern-day version of what they do. Uh, Anybody ever heard of clickbait? Okay, so you go online, and you'll see a headline. It says, you won't believe what these 10 child actors look like now. You see those kinds of headlines? Or maybe you're on a maybe you're on a Facebook scrolling through videos and you come across a video that says something to the effect of such and such senator shuts down another senator in this committee meeting. Or or reporter asks somebody a a, a dumb question and immediately regrets it. Right? We, for some reason, our culture has devolved to the point to where we absolutely love watching someone else get humiliated because of something wrong they say or something that they do. Now, I'm not saying all of us are like that, but I'm saying as, as a culture at large, that's what we're like. And that's kind of the attitude that you get from the Sadducees when they're doing this. They, 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 it, they are the ancient equivalent of the clickbaiters, of the viral video posters that just want to see their opponents humiliated. Now, does it really matter in the grand scheme of things? Probably not as much as they wish it would. But why not win the battle, right? I mean, after all, you're right. Don't they need to know it? That's exactly what the Sadducees are doing. They set up this absolutely absurd scenario just to show how ridiculous the idea of a resurrection is. So the scene involves seven brothers. There's this these, uh, this woman that marries the older of seven brothers, and she goes, uh, uh, so, so she marries the first one, and the first one dies, but they don't have any children. Now, according to the law of Moses, the next brother has a responsibility, in part to continue the family legacy, Right? Because you have land that's apportioned by inheritance. And if that guy has no children, there's no one to get the land. 
If he, if he dies without a child, without anyone to pass it along to, that inheritance dies out. And eventually, the family dies out. And that inheritance is lost. So the second brother steps in to do a duty, a responsibility, not only to the family, to the dead brother, but also to the woman, to the widow. Because now who's going to take care of her? She's by herself. She might have to sell herself as a slave for someone to, 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 to do their work for them so that she can have a means of getting by, a place to live and food to eat. So to avoid those things, the next brother steps up. It's called a Leverite marriage, and it's the, it's the story of Ruth and Boaz. But in this story, the Sadducees that are telling, uh, the second brother also dies without a child. So comes the third brother. And he dies, still no child. The fourth brother, the fifth brother, the sixth brother, the seventh brother, every brother goes to marry this woman and they all die without a child. And finally, the woman dies. And the Sadducees have to be feeling pretty good about themselves now. I mean, they have really cooked up a scenario. Now tell us, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? You can almost hear them talking down through their nose when they ask that question. No one in their right mind would ever expect this to happen. There's no way. The Sadducees aren't really asking a genuine question, are they? they they're just making their point. They're, their question may as well be, don't you see how ridiculous the idea of a resurrection is? It's what uh, logicians, uh, logicians call the reducto ad absurdum. It's the reducing your opponent's argument down to an absurd conclusion to disprove it entirely. You say, okay, I'll assume, I'll go along with what you say, but then that leads to this and leads to this and leads to this, and, and this is absolutely bonkers. There's no way, that, that's, that's, that's crazy. So your point can't be true. You can almost see the clickbait headline, local rabbi gets cocky, then gets schooled by Sadducees. Maybe I should write some of those headlines up. But not so fast. Jesus sees what's going on. But I, I kind of feel like a broken record when I say this. But he gets down to the root issue. He, he sees past the, the facade. He looks beyond the absurdity of the question to the absurdity of the logic behind the question. Luke doesn't say this, but Matthew and Mark do. And I really love the way that Matthew says it. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. <laughs> I love that. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't. You know, there's that verse, speaking the truth in love. <laughs> he is full of grace and truth, but sometimes truth, it just needs to be brutal. It just needs to be straight up front. And here it's straight up front. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. The very thing that you claim, that you say you are following, <clears throat> you have no idea what it actually says. The Sadducees are oblivious. They don't know the scriptures. They don't know God's power. If they did, according to Jesus, they wouldn't hold their beliefs about the resurrection. Look, look, listen to his description of the resurrection life. Verse 34. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. 
There's a lot to unpack right here. Jesus is saying that there's no need for marriage in a resurrection. You see, why do we have marriage here on earth? There's really two or three reasons. One is that um, it's, it's the foundation of our society. You destroy the marriage, you have destroyed society. I wonder why certain groups want to destroy marriage. Because it crumbles everything. It, it, you, may, you, may as well, you may as well be taking a jackhammer to your house's foundation and expecting the house to stand if you think our society can stand without the family. And I'm not just talking about people that want to say love is love and it doesn't matter who you love as long as you love them. I'm not talking about that. This started a long, long time ago. No-fault divorces did this. It, it's sad but true. So many Christians get divorces now that there's no difference in the divorce rate between within the church and without of the church. That's a shame. And it goes beyond that. It goes to a, to a, to a concept of how we handle our homes, how we handle our relationships. I've heard people say, well, you know, it's, marriage is a 50-50 thing. No, it's not. It's a 100-100 thing. It doesn't work otherwise. It's not just give or take. It's not just half and half. It's not just you two get together and, and, and find a way to split the difference between you. It's two become one. And either you're all in or you're not. And we've created a society where marriage doesn't matter. And then, if it doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that, that parents don't have the right to know what their kids are learning in school because the school has a policy that says we're, we're not going to let the parents know. Some school districts have a policy that if a child says that they are the opposite gender of what they are, the school actively hides it from parents. They will allow the child to change at school. They will call the child a different name at school. They will allow them to use the facilities of the other gender at school, but they will not say a word to the parents. And this isn't high school. This is elementary. We live in a day now where teachers are actively telling their students, it's not every teacher and not every place, but it is happening. Teachers are telling their students, don't tell mom and dad what we talk about in class. They don't understand. They, 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 they're, they're, just, they're just bigoted. They're, they don't... They don't understand. You see, if marriage doesn't matter, family doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. One of the key aspects of marriage in this life is that's the foundation of society. And it's crumbling before our eyes. And we've let it. We've let it. But you see, in a resurrection, in a resurrection life, that, 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 you don't need that foundation. There's another reason for marriage. It's not just as a, as a foundation for society. It's also... Well, I'm going to tell you what my, the minister that married me and Carrie, tell you what he's told us when we were in marriage counseling. He said, you, your marriage, sole purpose is to glorify God. Here's what's happening. When you're married to someone and, and you're doing this the right way, you are not only bringing glory to God by actively participating in something that he's designed, you are experiencing a taste of what God is like. Because you get to love someone. God in his nature, in his tri-unity, in his, in his three-in-one nature, three, 
uh, uh, three persons, one substance, however you want to think of, of this, God in his trinity loves within himself. He doesn't need another to love. One of the amazing things about the character of God is that he is so perfect that he does not need anyone else for anything. And one attitude, one, one respect in which that comes out is in love. God is capable of loving himself because he is three persons with one substance. Because he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is able to love in community without anyone else. I don't quite understand that. That's above my pay grade. That's far above my pay grade. I think if you put all our pay grades together, it'd still be quite far above our pay grades. But I do get this. In marriage, it's not perfect analogy. You don't get a perfect analogy of the infinite in a finite world with finite people. But you do get a fairly good analogy of what God looks like loving within himself as you love your spouse and they love you and you love your children and they love you. Within the family home, within that dynamic, we have a picture of what God is like. And we are not only experiencing that and learning more of God ourselves, we are demonstrating that to a world that has lost its way and has no clue what God is like. We get to demonstrate for them. But in the resurrection, there's no more need for that demonstration. There's no more need for the two becoming one to show what God is like. Because then, well, now we see through a glass darkly, but not then. Then we'll know perfectly. You see, now we need marriage, but then we won't. There's no death. There's no need for passing on inheritances. There's no need to provide for those that are left behind. In the resurrection, he says equal to angels. What, what Jesus is saying here isn't that we become the same as angels, but we just... We just become permanent like angels. We put off this flesh, this temporary body, and our souls live forever. Marriage will be a thing of the past. And that's a good thing. But there's something even more important about what Jesus says. You see, this is like the, all right, in the resurrection, you got the wrong idea about what the resurrection is like. This is what the resurrection is like. You don't have to worry about the marriage question in the resurrection. But then he turns and he addresses the key issue. Right? Jesus always gets to the root. Now he's getting to the root. Verse 37. But that the dead are raised. All right, look, you don't have to worry about marriage in the resurrection. But you know, this whole resurrection thing, even Moses showed it. And look where he goes. In the passage about the bush. What passage is that? Exodus chapter 3. Moses is standing at the burning bush. Actually, he's walking along and there's a bush on fire. And he says, oh my goodness, there's a bush on fire. Southern version, far. That bush on far, but it ain't burning up. I got to go see this. I'm going to continue in the Southern version for a second. He looks at it and God calls out from the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses says, here I, here I am. And God says, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. And then God says this. He said, I am the Lord. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. God does not identify himself just as I am. He'll do that later. He says, I am the God of four men. Your daddy, again, Southern version, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now, what did I presume? I don't know. Maybe his father 
hadn't yet. But I presume these four men all had something in common. By the time Moses was standing at that bush, I believe those four men all had something in common. You want to know what it is? They were all dead. Every single one of them. But then Jesus makes a remarkable statement in verse 38. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That's so important. Think about that for a second. Think of, think of what that means. What kind of a God would take glory in being the divine head over some men who once lived and now is dead as doorknobs? What kind of God would want his entire reputation built on rotting corpses? Doesn't sound like much of a God. What kind of a God would be worthy of our worship simply by being the worthy of the worship of people who once lived ages ago who are no more? I, Howard Marshall, in his commentary on this verse, just puts it so plainly and yet so powerfully. He said, only living people can have a God. Dead people don't have gods. The psalmist in Psalm 115 says, it is not the dead who praise the Lord. Those who go down in silence. But we will praise the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. It points us to a glorious truth. Resurrection is a reality. It's not just a delusion or a dream. It was, it was a reality when the Son of God burst forth from that tomb on that glorious Easter morning. And it's just as much of a reality in your life and my life today. Paul points to Christ's resurrection as the foundation of our faith and as its sure promise from God. The truth of the resurrection is as real as the pew you're sitting on and more. So it also shows us about the permanence of this second life, if you will. This, this resurrection life isn't some form of reincarnation where a person uh, uh, keeps being reborn as different things or different people until they finally achieve oneness with the universe or some life force. When a person dies in Christ, his relation with God through that great mediator is secure for all eternity. It's permanent. So the question kind of boils down to do you believe that? Do you believe in the reality of a resurrection? Or are you a Sadducee saying, nope, can't imagine it, can't see it. Do you really believe that God will raise up his people to live forever? Do you believe that God has already raised Christ from the dead? <laughs> I wonder if those two might have a connection. Oh yeah, Christ is the first fruits. He is both the last Adam and the first. He's the last in that he ends the curse and he's the first in that we all follow after him. Do you believe? Have you been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life? See, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. Every single one of us. But God can resurrect you. He can bring you from death to life. Will you trust him? Maybe you already have. Will you keep trusting him? Maybe you haven't yet. I know a really good day today. In either case, we know the resurrection is real. We don't have to ask the question. I know it's real because it's happened to me. I used to be dead, now I'm not. I didn't look bad for a dead guy. I was nine at the time, so that day when I was born again, everything changed. Still changing. What about you? Father, I pray that today we would not reject your promises not only your promise for a resurrection, but, but your promise and the, the impact that that resurrection can have on us, that, that it not just be about what we can do or can't do, that it be about what you have already done, that you are continuing to do, and that one day you will finish 
with glorious perfection. Father, we look forward to that day where you raise us up in that new life. That day when we close our eyes in death to this world and we experience your resurrection in its fullest, most glorious form. Help us live in light of that today. Help us honor you. Lord, as you're working in hearts, I pray that we would submit to you. Help us not be like the Sadducees looking for a fight, looking to school someone or shut them down. And help us find ways to bring people to you. Help us find ways to live in your resurrection. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.